0: Did you hear anything? They did you? not. we did. Uh, did you hear I forgot completely what I said. But today, <laughs> this afternoon, we're going to be uh, working with honoring our pain for the world. Actually, we started that last night, as some of you noticed. So uh, I'm going to uh, be sharing some uh, words of my own and especially of others, uh, for a little while at the beginning of this afternoon, maybe 15, 20 minutes. Then we're going to do two processes together. Uh, One is going to be uh, moving around and not talking. And then after the break, there will be uh, sitting and talking as we wish. So uh, here we discover the uh, full size and grandeur of the being we have been called to be in this time. And um, I would like to begin uh, with a prophecy that those of you who've worked with me before know, and it it bears repeating, as I'm sure you'll agree. And it is a prophecy from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. It's 12 centuries old, from the Kalachakra Tantra. And uh, in this uh, version of this prophecy, that I will give you, I have it from my uh, dear Dharma brother and teacher from Tashi Jong, that's that community I mentioned before lunch that has been such a vivid and important part of my life. Um, I got to know them in the 1960s uh, and then have been uh, walking with them either physically or just psychically at my side and I with them. It's been a great blessing in my life. At any rate, um, when I was back there on a visit in 1980, um, my friend and teacher, Dugu Chugel Rinpoche, gave me this prophecy. And it's about the coming of the kingdom of Shambhala. Now, as you may know, the notion of a kingdom of Shambhala is like a heavenly kingdom. It's like a, a kingdom of righteousness and peace. Uh, is um, has many different ways of being presented and understood. And some have seen it as a uh, teachers and scholars of a metaphor of an internal journey that it just happens internally. And others have seen it quite literally as a place you can get to. Uh, It has to do with the inner world or the outer world. But uh, Chujiao Rinpoche's uh, prophecy uh, seems to be both inner and outer. And uh, anyway, that's what stuck with me. I feel very privileged to um, have heard it from him when he told it to me. And I uh, will tell it to you now. And I want you to listen to it as if it's a prophecy about you. And then you will notice that there's a key figure in this um, who's called the Shambhala warrior. And in my understanding, that's a metaphor for the bodhisattva, for the... Uh, one who really gets it about the Buddha's teaching of the non-separateness, dependent co-arising of all things. There comes a time when all life on earth is in danger. In this time... Great powers have arisen, barbarian powers, and although they waste their wealth in preparations to annihilate each other, they have much in common. Among the things they have in common are weapons of unfathomable devastation and death and technologies that lay waste the world. And it is in this moment when the future of all beings, seems to hang by the frailest of threads that the kingdom of Shambhala emerges. Now you can't go there because it's not a place, he said. It exists in the hearts and minds of the Shambhala warriors. And actually, you can't tell a Shambhala warrior by looking at her or him because they don't wear any uniforms. They bear no insignia. They have no banners to identify whose side they're on. They don't even have any barricades upon which they can stand to threaten the enemy or behind which they can rest and regroup. They don't even have any home turf. Forever and always they move across the terrain of the barbarian powers. So the time has come, he said, when great courage is required of the Shambala warriors because they are going to go into the center of the power, the barbarian powers, to dismantle the weapons, and weapons in every sense of the word. They're going to go to where the armaments are manufactured and where they're deployed and they're going to go into the corridors of power where decisions are made and dismantle the weapons because then you could see they're weapons of mind as well as matter. And then he said, Joanna, mark this. The Shambhala warriors know that these weapons can be dismantled. Why? Because they're manomaya, mind-made. They are made by the human mind. They can be unmade by the human mind. Because the dangers that confront us now are not visited upon us by some satanic deity or some evil extraterrestrial force or even some inexorable, unalterable fate predestined. No, they arise out of our actions, our choices, our habits of mind, our attitudes, our relations. These dangers are made by the human mind. They can be unmade by the human mind. And then he said, Now is the time when the Shambhala warriors go into training. Well, you better believe I said, How do they train? And he said, they train in the use of two weapons. Actually, he used that word. You may prefer implements or tools. That's what he said. And I said, what are they? And he held up his hands the way the lamas hold the ritual objects in the great lama dances of his people. And he said, one is compassion And the other is insight into the radical interdependence of all phenomena. (laughs) And you need both. One alone is not enough. You need the compassion because that provides the fuel, the motive force to go out there where you need to go to do what you need to do. And what it boils down to is this, it's not being afraid of the suffering of your world. Because when you're not afraid of the suffering of your world, then nothing can stop you. But alone, by itself, this tool, this resource, this weapon, uh, can burn you out. It's hot. So you need the other. You need that understanding of the co-arising of all things, the mutual belonging of all entities in the web of life. With that, you know that this is not a battle between the good guys and the bad guys. but that the line between good and evil goes through the landscape of every human heart. And you know that so interwoven are our lives that even the smallest act with clear intention has repercussions through the web beyond your capacity to discern it. But he said that's kind of cool. It can seem abstract, That's why you need the heat of the compassion. They dance together. And as he said that, I thought of the moving hand gestures, the mudras of the monks in puja and realized, remembered that they are often, maybe you've seen them on film or in person, that they're dancing the interplay between Karuna and prajna between compassion, compassionate action and wisdom. Well, that's it. That's the prophecy. <laughs> my, my family was with me at this time, visiting as well. They come to join me in India and I trotted over, rushed over to where it was the end of the afternoon to where they were lodging in the community and I burst in, and I said oh you won't believe it I've heard the most fantastic prophecy from Chao," and I told them and my son Jack who was in college at the time listened carefully and he said But didn't he tell you how it's going to turn out? (laughs) Oh, good for you for laughing. I laughed too. I said, honey, if he had tried to tell me how it's going to turn out, I wouldn't have believed him. (laughs) So don't you believe anybody who tells you how it's going to turn out. Because the power in us, the focus in us, that radical attention in us has everything to do with uncertainty. with our being present in this moment. Hmm. So I see in this station of the spiral that we are working with the uh, first of those weapons of the Shambhala warrior. The not being afraid of the pain of the world. And from the Tibetan, because as I said, when you're not afraid of the world's suffering, nothing will stop you. Uh, From the same tradition, that is also seen as a warrior quality in the warrior song of King Gezar. Now, I can't remember the century of King Kisav. Do you know? Anybody know? But it was, uh, I'd say, about halfway between when Buddhism came to Tibet and us sitting here now. At any rate, <clears throat> from this ancient song, hear these words. If that doesn't ring a bell, if they don't, <clears throat> our earth is wounded. Her oceans and lakes are sick. Her rivers are like running sores. The air is filled with subtle poisons. And the oily smoke of countless hellish fires blackens the sun. Men and women, scattered from homeland, family, friends, wander desolate and uncertain, scorched by a toxic sun. In this desert of frightened, blind uncertainty, some take refuge in the pursuit of power. Some become manipulators of illusion and deceit. If wisdom and harmony still dwelt in this world as other than a dream lost in an unopened book, they are hidden in our heartbeat. That beating of the heart that is life doing it, not even us. Those are my words, not here. They are hidden in our heartbeat. And it is from our hearts that we cry out. We cry out and our voices are the single voice of this wounded earth. Our cries are a great wind across the earth. From King Ghazar. So, the capacity of the human heart mind to look into the face of suffering and pain has everything to do with its awakening to its full dimensions joy and power it's there in every legend so many legends it's on the hero's journey which is often after being responding to a call involving a dissent involving confrontation with some monster sometimes it involves kissing or embracing the monster owning it just the opposite from what one wants to do. When we want to close your eyes, cover your ears, run, hunker down, pull the blankets up, pretend you don't hear, and we do that so well. Oops. Um, It's just the opposite. It's just looking. Giving it the dignity of our Regard, and the third such utterance that I want to read is uh, from uh, the Christian tradition, and this for is my root tradition, and uh, this is Maundy Thursday, where we remember the Last Supper. Uh, and the arrest of Jesus, and in the wee hour, in the early hours tomorrow of Good Friday, the crucifixion. And <clears throat> on the cross, the uh, anguish of this man, who the crowds had welcomed to Jerusalem, just at the beginning of the week on Palm Sunday, proclaiming him a new king and waving palms. And, and then when he spoke out against the power holders and the injustices in the temple, how they sickened him, then the tide turned, of course. He dared to speak out against the power And in the agony on the cross, when he ended up in that most humiliating as well as ghastly form of death, he quoted a psalm uh, of the Hebrew tradition. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he's pushed. It's okay, even he did, to be pushed to the point of such Desperation and despair. So this is um a poem by Ernesto Cardenal, who is a priest in Nicaragua, the Sandinista culture minister in the Sandinista government. <clears throat> but we could say that because we feel we feel we're in some reaches and rooms of the mansions of our soul, we know we are not separate from the suffering ones. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I am only a mockery of a man, a disgrace to the people. They ridicule me in all their newspapers. See here, Cardinal, the poet, is using the pain To know his interconnectedness, indeed his identity with his brothers and sisters. Armored tanks surround me. I am at machine gun point, encircled by barbed wire, by electrified barbed wire. All day long they call my name from the rolls. They tattooed a number on me. They have photographed me among the barbed wire. All of my bones can be counted as in an x-ray. They have stripped me of all my identity. They have brought me naked to the gas chamber and divided among them my clothes and my shoes." I cry out begging for morphine and no one hears me. I cry out in the straitjacket. I cry out all night in the asylum of madmen, in the ward of the terminal patients, in the quarantine of the contagiously sick, in the halls of the old people's home. I squirm in my own sweat in the psychiatric clinic. I suffocate in the oxygen tent. I weep in the police station, in the army stockade, in the torture chamber, in the orphanage. I am contaminated with radioactivity and fearing infection. No one comes near me. Yet I will speak of you to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you, God, in the meetings of our people. My hymns will resound in the midst of this great people. The poor will sit down to banquet. Our people will celebrate a great feast, this new generation soon to be born. It's almost as if he were evoking a kind of Shambhala, a kingdom of peace and plenty and harmony. And somehow That is not separate from his opening, he, cardinal, to the deepest uh, empathy, identity with the suffering ones. And so often I myself, in talking about our non-separateness, I catch myself as if it were some, you know, Lovely, imperious thing. One with the hummingbirds and the flowers and the great thinkers of all time. And Cardinal reminds me that it's one with us all. The lost ones and the sick and the people holding the levers of power crazed with fear of themselves and maddened with fear. And then I see that interbeing taking Nhat Hanh's more positive way of phrasing the Mahashunyata the great emptiness of separateness the, in our interbeing what that really calls us to do we really want it? do we really want that? well he seems to be saying that we're not going to get to the great feast, we'll not all be there. And we won't be there either until we can embrace all of us and what we're doing and what we're suffering. Now this seems such a strange thing in this, in this uh, culture to be uh, calling people to uh, honor their pain for the world, which is what in each of the, he was doing there, he was honoring his anguish and letting it speak and becoming voice for the earth. That's what the Bodhisattvas were doing in that song of King Ghazar. That uh, sometimes I think that the enormous difficulty that we have in our culture, in our mainstream culture, to uh, own up to and speak uh, our anguish for our world is uh, because it is pathologized. When we utter it, it is so easily reduced to some personal neurosis To some mistake in our upbringing, to some early wound that is understood um, biographically. Maybe you were toilet trained too early, or maybe you had a tyrannical father, or maybe you, and that was told to me when I spoke to a therapist about my uh, anguish over the Vietnam War. I was also told, same therapist, I didn't st- hang around very long, um, that my distress over the deforestation taking place, and that was, this was back in the 60s. we have been chopping down the trees, clear cutting for quite a while, that the bulldozers that were mowing down the forest uh, were representative to me. They were... I feared them and was upset about them because they, I saw them as my libido. <laughs> it was my fear of my own sexuality. <laughs> but see, um, uh, it comes down to this notion of that, that uh, Wes was talking about this morning, uh, being a separate self. And these responses of anguish, of pain, of anger, of outrage when we see what is happening uh, to our world, to our friends, uh, to the other critters, uh, that those are uh, seen as um, some quirk of this separate self, some personal craziness and so we tend to that has been a force in silencing us there have been many many things, many factors and I won't take the time now because that's what we're about but in um, my book about the work that reconnects coming back to life um, there's uh, a chapter in that just on all all the things that silence us from doing just what Ernesto Cardinal and King Gizar said to do, cry out, uh, what has been in our traditions, to cry out. And something's silencing us. And... Uh, So part of it is that reductionism of our society to see it as personal craziness. And there are a lot of other things too. Desire to be patriotic. Desire not to be shunned by your friends, etc., etc. All pretty powerful. So we're uh, asking ourselves in this work that we'll do, And that we do all the time as uh, the great unraveling of the social and ecological systems of our uh, planet come apart uh, that uh, to be just the kind of practice that that Wes is leading us in. And this is a phrase, this is from an entity who's called Aaron. You may know some of his wisdom. He said... Let me put it this way. That which is aware of fear is not afraid. There is fear, or you say anger, or sorrow, futility. There's the fear, and there's the vast awareness that can observe the fear without separating from the fear. That's the crucial point. We can use, we cannot use the awareness to dismiss the fear. The awareness is there and the fear is there. When there is no dismissive attitude, then you can be present with fear or anger or sorrow with a kind attitude that's willing to deeply experience the fear, not have to get away from it, not judge yourself that it's there, And also not to have to act on it. So I mentioned, uh, I guess it was, maybe it was the first night. I want to draw a picture. Remember I mentioned being on a road toward the future and two ditches on either side?